Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Mr. D back here again today after a little bit of a break. Uh, we put out that video podcast episode on Friday. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, we're looking to do some more of those those you know, sometime this week and maybe get a YouTube uh, celebrity in here, Mr. Light, to do one with myself over Zoom. Uh, make sure you check in school with you guys. Make sure you're looking at uh, what we're posting, stuff like that. You're keeping up best you can. And if you are doing stuff on paper that we've provided, make sure you're just letting us know. So today we're going to cover the Roaring Twenties, okay? Full bias, full disclosure. Some of you know this. This is not one of my favorite units. I, I don't know why um, <laughs> the 20s never were my favorite, but, you know, I've I've come to appreciate them more as I've as I've taught them. Uh, I, think, I think what drives me the most insane is that we have this image of the 20s being uh, this very fun time, right? The roaring 20s. And certainly that image is justified. But today we're going to kind of uncover some things about the 20s that, well, really weren't so roaring and so great uh, altogether. So let's talk about that. The roaring 20s, right? The United States is coming out of the First World War, uh, which was a big change for the U.S. They were hit with the Spanish flu like the rest of the world. Uh, the avian flu at that time it was called to a Spanish avian flu, which really crushed a lot of the world's population, was an awful, awful pandemic of itself. And that's kind of the kickoff of the 20s. Um, and, but the end of World War I really sets the stage for a lot of social changes of the 20s. If you recall, women were working in factories during World War One. The 19th Amendment was passed, giving women the right to vote. Um, and one of the areas that this social change begins to happen with is that African Americans are going to have some job opportunities, a lot more in northern factories, and to escape the racism uh, of the of the southern Jim Crow, the segregation area of the country, and arrive in northern factories to try to take some of those jobs. And by 1910 to 1920, about half a million African Americans migrate from the south to the north, to northern cities, Detroit, Buffalo, Chicago, uh, just to name a few. Um, Rochester even had a bump in population, African Americans at the time. And a lot of this is, is, is tracing from, during the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan membership in, in their power across this country is is at an all-time high. And membership is, is streaking up. Uh, a lot of this is due to the film Birth of a Nation, which came out in the 19-teens. It kind of showed the Klan as the good guys, which we know today is not the case. And really, uh, it portrayed Southern Reconstruction Society as an awful thing and that things were better during the Civil War. And before that, um, the South had it all right, and the North kind of screwed that up and, and created this you know, this race of African-Americans who are not free that were just looking to do awful things. And the movie is completely ridiculous, but it portrays the KKK as the good guys. And, you know, when you have your President Woodrow Wilson showing at the White House saying uh, it's like writing history with lightning and it's very powerful and it's all true. And, you know, that's going to that's going to increase clan membership. Um, States like Indiana have high clan membership at the time. Uh, Lynching is still a common practice, Um, you know, unlawful hanging. And it's still happening across the country. Evidence of this is seen in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
Uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma had the Greenwood section of the city, which was where uh, it was kind of segregation by economy and segregation by law, too, as well, where you had a black section of the town and a white section of the town. And the black section of the town was doing far better economically than the white section. It was the richest area per capita for African-Americans in the United States. And the segregationist policies actually helped um, that area of the town become more wealthy and do very well. You know, I read somewhere that a dollar circulated 19 times in that community. Uh, you know, people spending money in their own communities and really keeping it at home. And that really led to, you know, a very, very thriving economy in the Greenwood uh, area of uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. The problem is what you see here is some jealousy begins to happen. Um, I read a newspaper article that a, a white um, citizen of, the, of Tulsa, Oklahoma, said something in effect of how dare that that black African-American have a piano in their home and I don't have one, you know, that kind of thing. So there's some jealousy there. Uh, a young individual whose name escapes me at the moment, um, he, he's a shoe shiner in the Greenwood section and he's given, been given permission to use this hotel facility to, cause he'll be outside the hotel shining shoes. And he's given the permission to operate in this hotel and outside of it and use the elevator. And as he's leaving the elevator, apparently what happens is he trips, stumbles, and falls and kind of bumps into the white female elevator operator. Um, this is a story that you can kind of hear, you know, of lynchings a few times, but fortunately this won't end that way for this individual. And uh, she cries out, you know, he, he runs, takes off, is immediately scared for what could happen to him. And uh, they, they come over, and he's gone by this point. The hotel security comes over, and she says that she was sexually assaulted, and she'll eventually recant that statement. She'll take it back, but the police uh, arrest the individual to charge him anyways. When word of a white lynch mob uh, arrives, many World War I veterans, and this is true of a lot of places, uh, black African-American World War I veterans were not treated very well when they came back to the United States. In fact, Woodrow Wilson wrote a memo asking the Allied powers to not treat them well because they'll have a hard time adjusting coming back to the United States. So what happens here is um, this white lynch mob goes to try to arrest the individual who supposedly, allegedly, um, but her statement later be recanted that she was sexually assaulted, this, this white woman in an elevator. And what happens here is uh, a... a a counter mob of African Americans, a group of African Americans, uh, fully armed. Many of them World War One veterans are outside the courthouse, refusing to allow the lynch mob to come in. And the lynch mob, upon arrival, is immediately like, "Whoa, we did not see this coming." I mean, not only are these guys armed, but they're armed killers. <laughs> they, they, many of them arriving from, you know, the shores of France. Not many, not long before. So you can imagine this being a pretty tense standoff. And just like many times that we see in history. You know, you, you do see this, um, you put enough people, angry people in one spot with guns and, you know, bad things do happen. And there's a struggle ensues and one of the white lynch mob um, individuals is actually shot, okay? Oh, the individual's name, by the way, I want to look this up because I want to get it right. Dick Rowland, he was 19 years old. And he's a very young man and you can imagine he's pretty pretty frightened by all this as well. So what you have here is, you know, Dick Rowland's inside, the tussle ensues and, and a white member of the mob is shot. Um, immediately people know this is going to lead to bad blood. So they leave the courthouse. Everybody kind of disperses. Um, Dick Rowan will eventually be released by the police sometime later. He'll take off first. I think it's Nebraska or Kansas, somewhere in the Midwest. He wants to get out of town. He doesn't want to be part of all this. Um, but 
the damage is done, the tension's there, the jealousy was there before, and the White Lynch Mob proceeds to burn and destroy all of the Greenwood section of town. Uh, beautiful region. You can go look at pictures of what it looked like before and after. Um, some 300 people died. It's probably more than that. That would include largely black members of the Greenwood section. Um, and also probably some of the the white individuals that were in that mob as well uh the the black african-american community does their best to defend the area but it, it just it goes very poorly so in my opinion the burning of black wall street in 1921 really shows kind of the undertones of that decade so it's important to go look at you also have the red scare going on the early 20s is pretty you know a lot of turmoil um the russian revolution happened and we talked about last unit with world war one and there's a lot of tensions with workers in the United States, a lot of mumblings of socialism and communism. And Mitchell A. Palmer, the attorney general, will actually start the Palmer raids in the 20s and invade the homes of 6,000 suspected communists and socialists and arrest them in some cases without search warrants or anything. And you can imagine this is a violation of your Fourth Amendment rights of search and seizure. You can go check that out in the Bill of Rights. But uh, again, that fear, there's a lot of fear in the 20s, a racial fear. You've got this fear of socialism and communism. Um, you know, many people would say like, well, if they're socialists or communists, they should be arrested, I guess you could argue, but not really because you have you're free to have those opinions on the First Amendment um, First Amendment rights. If you're not advocating the violent overthrow of the government, you're allowed to be a socialist or a communist, and there was no evidence that there was any overthrows plan of these individuals. Um, there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiments, and in some cases you'll start seeing the quotas being put on immigration in the 20s that were capping how many immigrants come to this country at some uh, some junctures. Sacco de Vancetti, um, this is one that's really tricky for me because, you know, I've, I read some recent evidence that these guys could have been guilty, um, some recent evidence that they're not guilty. I don't want to take a side. I just want to throw it out there. Two Italian individuals uh, near Boston, Massachusetts, who were, they, they took part in anarchist meetings, um, you know, they they sh- murdered a couple individuals, uh, I believe they're security guards, and you know them being Italian didn't help with the anti-immigrant sentiment. Uh, both were found guilty of the crime, despite some shaky evidence at the time, and uh, both were executed. So you've got a lot of fear kind of rumbling here. Let's get to some other stuff, though, politically. Um, the 20s have all Republican presidents, so it's a little bit of a unique decade in that, after Woodrow Wilson's last presidency. And Americans wanted this, um, this is an important phrase, a return to normalcy. And what normalcy meant, first of all, it wasn't a word until Warren G. Harding, who won the election in 1920, the Republican. He'll they'll botch the speech and he'll say instead of a return to normal, a return to normalcy. And so we've we're stuck with the word now, and it's it's uh, become part of our language. And Americans wanted this return to pro- prosperity, really, is what they want. They want the 20s to be good times rolling. You know, we had to go fight this awful war, the Spanish flu. Let's 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 relax and take some time for ourselves, I guess, is what you could say. Um, Warren G. Harding is the first president of the decade. He wants to have what he calls his, you know, his laissez-faire economics, pro-business economics, lower taxes, deregulate business, and the economy will flourish. GDP, GNP will increase. Um, those measures of the economy will do well, other ones not so much. Remember, laissez-faire economics, hands-off economics, government stays out. You know, this is pro-free market, pro-capitalism, okay, and less regulation. However, his cabinet will be pretty uh, pretty corrupt. Um, we get one of the biggest, I would, I would say until Watergate, the biggest scandal in American political history uh, happens in the 20s, and it's known as the Teapot Dome Scandal. What you have here is Albert Fall, Secretary of the Interior. He leases these really oil-rich lands in Teapot Dome, where it gets the name from, Teapot Dome, Wyoming. These were supposed to be the naval reserves for the U.S. Navy. Um, 
There was no bidding. And typically, this wasn't uncommon to, to lease this and, and to pay the fee, but there was no bidding involved. He accepted a bribe and just allowed certain companies to drill and use the oil. Um, uh, there's a little bit of evidence suggests that this was a widespread conspiracy and that you know Harding probably knew about it, but Harding will actually die of a heart attack um, it, while in office. And it's, it's you know, besides assassinations, it's kind of one of the first things that sort of happened like this. And he'll die of a heart attack and Calvin Coolidge, his vice president, will take over. And Coolidge kind of brings the calm to the administration. He's, I'm, I'm going to take over. He gets rid of the corruption and he'll stick with the pro-business stuff, but he's kind of the, you know, this, this calming, um, he's regarded as boring in some cases, uh, just presence to the office. And one big thing that's known, now we're getting into the, the roaring aspects. I kind of did all the bad stuff first. Um, here's some of the roaring, changing aspects. You know, this idea of consumer culture uh, that we still live with today. Got to have the latest iPhone and all that, right? This time it was like toasters, you know, washing machines, things that make your life a little bit easier. You know, oh, you, you got to have this and, you know, this advertising. This is really the, the beginning of all that, you know, the consumer buying things uh, in the 20s. And But the problem is, Middle class wages for your average worker and farmer at this time, take them together. They're not doing so hot. They have jobs. They're employed. Their jobs pay decently, but it's not enough to, you know, the consumer culture prices haven't quite met the wage wage spot. So you kind of have this new um, burgeoning aspect of credit, this, this growing aspect of credit, and people are buying things on credit more and more and more. Now, while you're employed and have a job, this is totally fine. You know, you can pay that credit off. Um, you don't want to rack up too much, but hey, it, just, just buy it on credit. So it's also called installment buying at the time. And this will also apply to the stock market. So not only are middle class wages not doing great, your farmers are struggling. In the stock market, people are buying more and more stocks or shares of company on credit, also called on the margin. Okay, and that kind of leads to this false image of the stock market doing well, false image of companies having more wealth than they do, driving share prices sky high. So we kind of get some of these early precursors to the next, you know, to be the Great Depression. Some other uh, important aspects of consumer cultures like Henry Ford. Henry Ford um, in the 20s, I mean, he's been doing his assembly line and his Model T for a bit now, but in the 20s, it really takes off in the car, the automobile becomes a consumer item we're still left with today that let's face it people like cars we have nascar uh americans love to you know some people just like nice cars are car junkies and that really begins with you know ford and his assembly line techniques making automobiles affordable for the common individual it wasn't necessarily um you know that cheap and not everybody could afford it, but it brought the prices way down. It went from being a complete luxury item to an item that more people could afford. It's also the era of flight that we're enamored with. Charles Lindbergh and Amelia Earhart are doing their thing. Uh, you know, Amelia Earhart will fly across the Atlantic as will Lindbergh, and you know they kind of become celebrities. And to piggyback off that, with the radio, you have the kind of the beginning of mass media. Movies and radios becoming so popular. Uh, interests are no longer regional. You can now have internet, you know, national celebrities across the country. People like, you know, Murderer's Row with the Yankees and Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth and, you know, um, sports celebrities come in this decade and get popular. You have the emergence of popular culture. I want to talk about this definition because it's important and it matters even today. Um, Popular culture is huge because it's basically the trends and, and the music and everything that's popular within a certain amount of time. So pop culture, you can kind of, you know, almost pin to decades and certain time periods. Uh, in this decade, some of the pop culture is, you know, 
pretty pretty famous. Uh, flappers, one of the favorite Halloween costumes that everybody loves to do. Um, you know, women pushing their boundaries more and more, cutting their hair shorter. You know, was unusual, different for the time. You know, I'm gonna show my elbows and my knees and maybe ankles. Oh goodness, you know, um, women becoming a little more independent in what they do, marrying later in life or staying unmarried, uh, finding professions that allow them to do that, going to college in larger numbers, all sorts of things, uh, drinking and smoking publicly, considering me more socially acceptable. I get a lot of this from a Life magazine article. I have my students read about, you know, what a flapper is like and, and who she is. And um, the word that they use a lot to describe that type of woman is liberated, right? Um, you got some uh, some pushback, though, from some of this new stuff, right? You've got the Scopes trial. John Scopes, this whole idea of religion versus science. Um, John Scopes is a science teacher in Tennessee who taught his students evolution, knowingly that in Tennessee you can't teach evolution. It was only creationism, you know, the genesis of the Bible. And that that would be um, pretty controversial. So he does this. He's arrested, and it becomes known as the monkey trial. Right? People are bringing monkeys. It's you know with the radio, mass media spraying on the country. This this trial becomes quite famous. Uh, William Jennings Bryan, our buddy there, he's much older now from eight, the eighteen ninety six campaign for president. Uh, will will prosecute and and speak against. Uh, John Scopes and Clarence Darrow, very, very, very famous lawyer, maybe one of the most famous defense attorneys at the time, will defend John Scopes in the trial. He's found guilty, but the Supreme Court of Tennessee reverses the ruling, and the and the penalty wasn't much. But it was just seen as this, you know, the old versus the new, science versus religion. Then you've got prohibition. The 18th Amendment passed at the end of the 19 teens there, and many people look at this as a stupid decision today. Like, how could this work out? How could you make alcohol legal? But I want to talk about a couple things it only outlawed the sale of alcohol people could still make kind of make their own like beers and wines but i want you to understand something that americans had a reputation of being very hard drinkers at the time i mean people would visit from uh from other countries um in the 20th century it went from just kind of like beer and liquor i'm sorry excuse me it went from like you know beers and wines to heavy liquor drinkers um I remember Ken Burns' Prohibition special cited that the average American was consumed about 88 bottles of liquor a year in 1919, which is about five times the average today. So there was an issue in the country. Now, maybe the response of outlawing alcohol and the sale of it wasn't the answer, but still. So we get the image of the speakeasy, uh, illegal clubs where people consume alcohol, people dying of bad mixes of alcohol. Um, you know, you go to the doctor and try to find your way around the law by getting a prescription. Oh, doc, I have a headache here. Here's a bottle of whiskey. Um, then you have the the mafia, the crime, the 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 quote unquote Italian mob that grows out of this. People still want to drink, and prohibi- prohibition ends up creating more issues and fixing problems. People are still drinking, and now they're kind of doing it in an unsafe manner. And by 1933. Um, FDR, who will be president by that point, will repeal the 18th Amendment with the 21st. Last thing I want to talk about today is, you know, growing out of the Great Migration, you have something called the Harlem Renaissance. Now, a renaissance is an explosion of culture um, and, uh, you know, kind of like an old and a new meeting to create a brand new thing. Uh, usually deals with music, art, those kinds of things. And in Harlem, New York, low housing attracted a lot of African Americans to live there. And all of a sudden, you have these great artists, poets, uh, poets, <laughs> artists, poets, musicians, uh, you know, African American politicians meeting. And it's like the place to be, place of collaboration. So we get this idea of the Harlem Renaissance coming out of that. It's a time where African American culture could really be reborn and born into something new and to work against that segregation and inequality. And Langston Hughes, I love his poetry because I think it um, exemplifies the time period. You you read poems like Harlem and I Too that will deal with issues of race and segregation as well. And I encourage you to go read both those poems. They're a great review for this unit. 
And you also have the famous jazz music of the 20s. This is also known as the Jazz Age, very heavily African-American music. Um, it's definitely part of the pop culture of the day. And it's influenced so much later music. And it's the new hip music of the time that your parents did not want you listening to. You did not want your kids going to jazz clubs, speakeasies, those kinds of things. And uh, they wrote about subjects that people didn't always discuss or talk about in jazz music, which kind of made it trendy. Some of the famous musicians, you know, you got Louis Armstrong, uh, Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Rochester's very own. Uh, for instance, one of his songs, Minnie the Moocher, is about a woman of, you know, air quotes, ill repute or a woman who practiced prostitution. And these are things you didn't write about, write music about at the time. And so it was very, very trendy. Um, and I want to talk about one last thing to kind of end this, because I think this really exemplifies my opinion on the 20s, and that's the Cotton Club. The Cotton Club was a club that was opened in Harlem. Um, Duke Ellington was involved with it. I think it kind of exemplifies the hypocrisy of the era, the the attitudes of people. Um and this was a club, you know, the Cotton Club, obviously it's a play on, you know, African-Americans' time and bondage. And it's a club where the idea was to have white upscale guests come in, see black musicians um, play and, and jazz music and all that stuff. And uh, the club was in New York. And they did not allow black guests all the way up until 1935. And people like Langston Hughes even saw the club as a problem, sort of like almost like a, a I, I don't know if he described it as a zoo, but he describes the place like, oh, these white upscale guests just come see these black performers. And while you think you're exposing them to black culture, really, you're just kind of, you know, creating a, a place where you can come watch and see things. So it was very controversial, the Cotton Club. And, and I think it and other cities had them, too, I want to point out. Um, but a lot of famous people performed there, you know, Louis Armstrong performed there. Um, so it's, it's a very controversial thing. And I think really shows the decade, you know, why you do have this social change in some ways, you know, you have uh, tons of white guests coming to see black performers underneath that. Although you have, you know, you didn't allow black guests in there until 1935. So it really exemplifies the decade in my opinion. So the twenties seen as an exciting time, have that image of roaring, but it's so much more than that. I, I encourage you to dig into it. Our next episode will be on the Great Depression and New Deal. That's going to be a longer one. I, I'm around 20 minutes here because the intro adds about a minute. Don't forget. So I think I did a decent job here. We hope you enjoyed. Stay healthy, stay safe, and keep listening. Thanks for listening to Holly History.